Father, you have invited us time and time again to come before your throne, to worship you, to lay our requests before you, to rest in you, to find peace in you, to listen to you, Lord, and as we were talking about in Sunday school, to behold the goodness of who you are. And Father, as we sing songs of worship, I hope that it's put all of our hearts in a place where we want to continue to worship as we look into your word. I pray that you would lead us and guide us this morning, that you would give us your grace and your mercy, that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 9, Verses 6 and 7, we have what is one of the most famousest of Christmas verses, uh, which Cynthia read for us earlier. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And I don't know how often, a lot of times when we have verses that are very familiar to us, it's too easy to, to read it quickly. And think, well, yeah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and, you know, the government will be upon his shoulders, and so on and so forth. Right, Christmas verse, we know that. But we have to think about what that, those two simple lines really are telling us. Because the first line, unto us a child is born, speaks of the incarnation of Christ. When John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's incredible. God becoming man, Emmanuel. God with us. The second line, unto us a son is given, speaks of his death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the rest of it, when you get through verse, the rest of verse 6 and verse 7, which we're going to read in a moment, then speaks of his role as our king and savior and high priest and the coming, his second coming, where he will set up a millennial reign and he will rule and reign forever. And it's too easy to just read it and go, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Right, and just, just to kind of get that in the back of our head and not always in our minds at the very least recognize all that these two verses are saying. But unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... To order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And we go back. I know it's not up there, but we're going to talk about it later. Uh, because it's also what's in Matthew. In verse chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, put yourself in the place of a Jewish listener. 
Because for the Jewish listener who heard Isaiah 7.14, long before we get to Matthew chapter 1, that would have been a very odd thought to them. God with us. Because for the Jewish listener, God was very centralized in the temple, in Jerusalem. Now, it didn't mean that God could not act outside of the temple in the Jerusalem. Certainly he could, and they knew that, and they asked him often to do that. We can see that whenever the Israelites are going to battle or something of that nature. But it doesn't change that if you were an Israelite, maybe you would wake up in the morning and, and you would say a prayer like the, the Shema from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and strength right you would say a prayer like that but you couldn't really worship you couldn't really sacrifice and you couldn't really experience God in their mindset unless you went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple so hearing that idea well God will be with you that was different to them and the idea that God would take on human flesh and walk the streets of Jerusalem would enter the temple at, well, at eight days old to be circumcised and then 12 years old to talk to the priests and that he would come back when he was in his early 30s and flip over tables and throw out the money changers. That was beyond anything they could ever imagine or comprehend. And then when Mary was pregnant, Joseph had a dream where we read in Matthew 1, starting in verse 21, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus or Yeshua. So a name we know, right, is a title by which one person or one thing is designated from another. It's a way for us to tell people places and things apart. In our day, do not, uh, names do not hold the same significance that they used to, right? William Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. For us, though, names are simply a way to tell things apart, right? I, I don't drink snow from my car. I drink coffee from my mug, right? You, that, that was my, my point. Thank you for the couple people who rolled their eyes. Um, John just doesn't even pretend anymore. Now he just shakes his head and laughs at me. <laughs> right? But you know, if I say, oh, I'd love a cup of coffee, you're not going to go get me a, a, what, a Slurpee from, we don't have 7-Eleven near here, but you're not going to go get me a Slurpee, right? We all have the same general idea of what coffee is. It, it, now, it is funny, like we have, um, our son, you all know, is John, and John's name is John. Um, I know it's profound and it's deep and it's going to get worse. Um, but in our house, it is interesting. I will get a text and my wife will be like, oh, who texted you? John. And she'll be like, John, John or our John? Well, he's John, John. 
And our John is our son, right? Because we have to make the distinction because they have the same name. We do the same thing with our Hannah and Hannah McKeek, right? Oh, Hannah's going to help decorate. Hannah's going to be at work. No, Hannah's going to decorate for the night of lights because Hannah's going to be at work. It's a name. But that's what we use names for. In the Old Testament, it was different. A name stood for a person's reputation, their fame, or their glory. Parents often gave names that described the parents' hopes and future expectations regarding that child. I think the Native Americans got this a little better than even we do because they used to name their their children based upon events surrounding by their birth. Anybody want to guess what Sitting Bull's dad saw right after he was born? Right? I mean, there's the name had a reason. As you go throughout the Bible, you see this quite often, that the personality of a person uh, would often match their name, right? David means beloved. Abraham means father of a multitude or father of many. Jacob means trickster or supplanter. Goliath means splendor. And all of these people proved to be true to their names. Uh, at one time, I used to be curious about what my name meant. Uh, Jason is the Greek word for healer. And Christopher, that's, do you guys all know my middle name was Christopher? Anybody? Uh, my middle, I've been here for a while. I've never mentioned my middle name. My middle name's Christopher. Uh, Christopher means Christ bearer. Uh, I don't know that I'm a healer, but as a follower of Christ, we're all to be Christ bearers. Uh, but that's what my name means. I actually don't know what my last name means. I've never been able to find out. So if anybody's really good with genealogical things, you want to figure out what my last main name means, go for it. I know there's a lot of us, uh, especially over in Italy. But today, we're going to look at the name or names of Jesus. After all, it was the name given to him by God, his father. We read about that in Matthew 121. You can see it in Luke 131 as well. And the name Jesus is a name that has been exalted by the Father above every other name in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And when that name is mentioned, men should bow down before him and confess him as Lord. His name is a special name. So first, his name reveals his personality. Emmanuel, God with us. And it reveals a supernatural baby, a supernatural birth, and a supernatural battler. So it first reveals a supernatural baby. Not just another child, but God in human flesh. John 1, 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. In that passage in Philippians 2, we're just going to look at verses 5 through 8. This is kind of fleshed out for us. Where Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, we talked a little bit last week, and, and this has come up in my personal life uh, recently. Um, actually, we talked about this on Wednesday. I take it back, but we talked about it on Wednesday. That there are mysteries we don't get to know. There's a beautiful verse in Romans chapter 1 where we're told that what can be known of God, he has revealed to us or he has shown us. Well, the fact that there is what can be known means that there are things that can't be. There are things about God that we don't get to know, that we don't get to understand. And I love that because he's God and I'm not. And I think this is one of them. How does God become his creation? Oh. How did the Holy Spirit conceive Jesus in Mary's womb? I don't know. How is it that he spent 30 or so years, 33-ish, maybe close to 34 years, walking the earth that he made? Standing upon the dust that he formed into Adam. I wonder if, and this is, right, I all just my mind going where it goes. I wonder if he ever laid down, you ever lay down at night and you know your ribs are there? Well, most of us can feel of our, our ribs. I know they're there. They're in there somewhere. I have to poke too hard to find them. But do you ever think maybe he ever sat there and felt one of his ribs and go, oh yeah, that's the one I took out of Adam to make Eve. I don't know why. These are the things I think about. But this is the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us the entire time still being God. 100%. While at the same time still being human. 100%. We, we give it a fancy word. It's called the hypostatic union. But the fact is, he never ceased being God. But he was fully human. Emmanuel, God with us. And this came from a supernatural birth. Not a normal birth, but a virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The fact that the virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit is because he needed to be sinless. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You go to 1 Corinthians somewhere. This isn't in my notes, but it popped into my head somewhere in 1 Corinthians, where by Adam all have inherited a sin nature. And by the second Adam, we sang that phrase in that Phil Wickham song, A Thousand Names. The second Adam is Jesus. Now, we call him the second Adam because the first Adam, 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 the garden Adam, he was the federal head of all humanity. And what I mean by that is back in Genesis 3, when he sinned, right? Eve was deceived, Adam chose. When Adam sinned, Every person after him inherited a sin nature. 
federal head of all humanity. You and I are sinners inherently, and then we acted out because we're sinners. Jesus became a federal head of all who would believe. Because of all who believe, we now have a new birth. We can now have a different nature. We can be transformed into the image of Christ. So the supernatural birth allowed him to have no sin. Right? The Bible often talks about spot and blemish. Right? One of those, and I'm going to get it mixed up, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to make the distinction, but one of those is inherited and one of those is caused. Right? So maybe if you're born with a birthmark, that could be a spot. You're born with it. It's just there. You didn't do anything to get it. But then most of us, as you live life, you get scars. That's a blemish. Now, sin is the same way. We are born with a sin nature, and as we grow and we get older, we act it out. And the only way to be delivered from it is from our sinless, perfect high priest. And it reveals, after the supernatural birth, a supernatural battler, which I hate that word. Um, why would God enter this world? He came to fight a battle, a bat, wow, that humanity could never wage or win. He came to do battle with Satan and sin. We couldn't do it on our own. He had to do it for us. John 10.10 tells us the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. There's two camps. We have an enemy who wants to steal everything that could be good in our lives. He wants to kill us. He wants to kill our soul. He wants to destroy our future and our eternity. And then we have a Savior who came and said, I'm going to give you life. And not just life, but abundant life. Life that is eternal. And that eternal life begins now. Because the idea that one day I'll have eternal life. No, 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 no. I have, and you, if you are a follower of Christ along with me, have eternal life now. Why, one day you'll move. And that eternal life will be transferred from this body that is covered with those spots and blemishes and be put into an eternal body with long flowing blonde hair. No, that's not going to happen. But, um, but a new eternal body that'll be different, that'll be perfect. Not that my body isn't perfect now. Perfectly round. Right? Everybody says, I want to get in shape. Well, when did round stop being a shape? What shape do you want to be in? You want to be a triangle? Rectangle? Round is a shape. But that's what Jesus came to give us. And when we, we come to Christmas, and I say it every year, and I'm going to say it all month, and I'm going to say it next year, and the year after that, and the only time I'm going to stop saying it is when Jesus comes back. And then I'm just going to say it in heaven. But when we get to Christmas, there's so much about it that's fun. Like I love the trees. I love having a Christmas tree. We got a little humbuggy this year. And we got a little tree. Um, but it's still up. It's still decorated. We still have red and green lights and stockings and, and all that stuff hung up, right? We don't have a chimney. Santa's going to have a hard time. Um, 
or he would end up in our boiler, which would be bad, because uh, <laughs> we do have a chimney, but it goes to the boiler. I, and I don't. I know Santa's not real, right? I hope I didn't ruin that for anybody. But sorry, sorry, Mark. Yeah. Oh gosh, how dare you? And every year I tell this story about when I was a youth pastor, and I had a parent get mad at me because her 12-year-old in my youth group didn't know Santa wasn't real. Yeah, I know. But she got all upset at me. I'm like, he's 12. Yeah, but we, we never told him Santa wasn't real. And I looked at her and I said, he's 12. If he hadn't figured it out yet, you might send him to the school counselor. I didn't say that. And all of that's wonderful, but we come to Christmas to celebrate Jesus Christ. That's what the word means, Christ Mass, a celebration of Christ. And um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I saw some person on the internet getting berated by an atheist. And they said, well, how dare you say Christmas is about Jesus? Where do you get that from? And the person looked back and said, it's right there in the name, Christ Mass, the celebration of Christ. And while we take a special time coming up to December 25th, even though he was not born in December, and, and we put up trees and, and people dress up in red outfits and you got the little elf ears and then there's candy and there's cookies and there's presents and we celebrate Jesus Christ. Now we can do that every day and we should do that every day. But he came for that reason. Right? He wasn't born so we could put up trees and give presents. He was born so he could grow and fight our battle. 1 Samuel 17, 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. His name, number two, and this kind of builds on what I just said, reveals his purpose. Now, in our English Bibles, we call him Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, or what we would say is Joshua. And it means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah Shua. Jehovah is salvation. Jesus comes from the Greek Jesus, which is Joshua in Greek. And that's why we call him Jesus. And his name first speaks of his desire. The name Jesus reveals a God with a desire to save sinners. We are told Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the lost could be saved. John 3, 16 through 18, right? We always, everybody knows 16. 17 and 18 are so vital. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's verse 16, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. I love the simplicity of the gospel. In 1 John chapter 5, the same writer who wrote down Jesus' words there in John chapter 3, 
made it so easy for us. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Jesus said the same thing here. If you believe in him, you won't be condemned. If you don't believe in him, you will. Now this desire to save sinners, and I like this phrase that I stole, it was the heartbeat of God before the world was formed. The desire to save sinners was the heartbeat of God before the world was formed. God's plan was conceived in eternity and was consummated when Jesus came. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The name Jesus speaks of his deliverance. He came to save us, and that includes the purpose of setting the captives free for the redemption of the lost. Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When we studied that while we were, as we're going through the book of Luke, one of the things that I mentioned is we, we have to understand what that liberty is because are there people that are captive today? Of course. Are there people who are followers of Christ who are still captives of something? There are. This speaks of us being free from sin. Not that we would live sinless, but that we would be free from the judgment that will come upon those who have rejected Christ. It talks us about being free from death. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Because we have been set free from that in Christ. There are still people in the world who are oppressed, but we can have liberty from that oppression. Does that mean every single person on earth will stop experiencing oppression? One day. But while we wait for that, that freedom, that liberty from oppression is spiritual and it's in our hearts. In Titus 2, 13 through 14, we're told that we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And finally, the name Jesus, Yeshua, reminds us of the fact that he came into this world to die for our sins. The only way the sin problem could be dealt with is through the shedding of blood. We know that from Hebrews 9.22. So if Jesus is going to save us, he had to die in our place. Galatians 1.3-5 reminds us that he did this for us as a group. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present 
evil age. And then Galatians 2.20 makes it personal. He did it for me, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For us and for me. I love that distinction. Because we, as followers of Christ, we as a church, we as brothers and sisters who are walking a journey of apprenticeship and faith in Christ together, he did it for us. We are the beloved of God. He loves you just as much as he loves me, and vice versa. And because I know me better than I know you, I'm thinking he might love you a little more. Even though I'm convinced I'm his favorite, I just can't find a scripture to back it up. I wanted to buy a t-shirt once that said, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And I thought that would be in poor taste considering my, my job. But the fact of the matter is, we have that, not group, but the application to every believer. He died for us. But then he died for me. And C.S. Lewis says it so wonderfully, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he said, if you were the only one, he still would have done it. Could you imagine that? If there weren't 8 billion people on earth, and there never were going to be, and the only person that was ever going to live was you, he still would have come to save you. Finally, his name reveals his power. And that's where we go back to Isaiah 9, or 9, 6 through 7. His name shall be called. Now, I want you to note that the word, their name, that is singular. It's not his names will be called, right? That we're going to have a series of names that, that he has a multitude of middle names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? It's not that, that he has a string of names, his name. Jesus displays all of the following characteristics at the same time, right? You can look at my name and everybody knows I'm Jason or everybody who knows me knows I'm Jason, but I have other names, quote unquote. To some people, you know me as a pastor, some people know me as, as um, a pickleball person, right? It depends. I got in trouble for hitting a ball hard the other day. Somebody got really mad at me for it. And um, Galen's smiling. I'm not going to say a name because you know who it is. Um, and they got all upset at me. I'm like, I didn't hit you. <laughs> oh, but you could have. I'm like, no, I aimed well. <laughs> You know, and then, then the Lord was like, really? Okay, so I stopped and I apologized. And, um, right, but some people, that's how they know me. Other people know me in various ways. There are people in the world who knew me as their elementary school teacher. And there's people in the world who know me as their guitar teacher. But I've never been all of those things at the same time. It'd be really hard to play pickleball and preach a sermon and teach someone how to play guitar all at once. God in the form of Jesus Christ, did all of it and does 
all of it at the same time. It starts with the fact that he is wonderful. It means he is the supernatural one. The word means miracle, supernatural, secret, and extraordinary. He is the miracle man. Men cannot comprehend him, but he can be believed on by the smallest child. And it's wonderful. He is our counselor. He is the supervising one. The word means to advise, counsel, propose, devise, and plan. It refers to his role as the leader and guiding force in our lives. He is wonderfully qualified for this job. A couple of examples. He is the planner of our path. Psalm 37, 23, Job 23, 10. If you ever don't know what to do, just read Job. It's good for you. That's a joke from Sunday school. I said it was going to come up. I didn't realize it would come up there. Number two, he is the giver of grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. My grace is sufficient for you. He is the worker of wonders. Romans 8, 28. We love that verse, don't we? And all things will work together for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. We love that verse, but have you ever taken that verse out to its logical conclusion? Because we don't like it. Right? As much as we love that verse, if you take it out to its logical conclusion, we begin to hate that verse. Because that means every hurt, every pain, every tragedy, every time somebody betrays you, every time somebody talks bad about you, every time somebody hurts you, every time you prayed a prayer that you were convinced should come true and it didn't. All of it was for good. Now, I don't know about you. I can look back over the course of my life and I see a lot of things that I'm still waiting to find out how God's going to use it for good. And maybe we'll never find out here and we have to be okay with that. But we like that verse. Oh, everything will work out for good. You know, I'll get the new job, I'll get the new car, I'll get the new house, I'll go on the right vacation. That's not what that verse means. It means that everything in your life God will use for good, whether we see it or not. But he's the worker of wonders, 2 Corinthians 4.17. And what a, what a wonder it will be. Because one day we're going to see him face to face and all our questions and all the answers we think we deserve, they're just going to fall away as he wraps his arms around us. And in that moment, we're going to look back and we're going to go, wow. Romans 8.28 was true. I mean, right now, we say it's true. And we know it's true. And one day we're going to see it. Probably not today. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is the sovereign one. The word means that he is a hero. It refers to one who is strong, mighty, and invincible. He alone is worthy to be our hero, for he has defeated all our enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. And he alone is worthy of all our worship. He is everlasting. There was never a time when he was not. And there will never be a time when he is not. It's one of the best questions. Where did God come from? I don't know. Well, did, did he have a beginning? No. Does he have an end? No. How big is he? No idea. 
I know that he can hold 15 billion light years in the palm of his hand. I know he can count the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of grains of sand on the seashore. How big is God? I don't know. Big. Real big. Big, big. Huge. Gargantuan. So good, I, saw, I saw a look on Aaron's face. That's why I paused. I knew something was coming. Some would even say gargantuan. But there's never a time when he hasn't been. And there's never a time when he won't be because he does not exist inside of time. He's actually the one who created time. That's why we, it's been something that I've been working through in my own life uh, over the last couple of years is that hurry is so not of God. You want to know why God's never in a hurry? Because time doesn't mean anything to him. It doesn't. Oh, I've got to make a decision right now. No, you don't. If God wants it, and he wants you to wait for it, then that'll be fine. If God doesn't want you to have it and you make the decision right now, he's going to, it's not going to go well. God will never hurry us, because he's not in a hurry. He's everlasting. It's where the phrase I am comes from in, in Exodus 3:14, and then John claimed, or uh, sorry, Jesus claimed that for himself in John 8:58, the word I am, the everlasting one. I am that I am. He is the eternal self-existent one. We don't comprehend that because we are not self-existent, are we? Without our mom and dad, we wouldn't be here. God doesn't have that issue. He just is. Now, we talked about the mystery of God and things we can't understand. There's one. Try to comprehend a being that is not bound by time, is not bound by space, is not bound by matter, is not bound by location, that can do absolutely whatever he wants, yet chooses to bind himself by his own character because he will never do anything that is not loving. Let's just start to try to wrap your brain around that. It'll hurt. You'll, you'll need a Tylenol. Because we can't. But that is who he is. And our life is tied to his. Because he lives, we live. He is Father, the eternally sustaining one. The word Father there in Isaiah means that he is the producer or generator. In other words, he is our source. He created us through Adam. He recreated and regenerated us through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And as our Father, he sustains us by his mighty power. And we are his children, and therefore, we are his responsibility. I am so sorry. I, do, I don't want to be my own responsibility. I'm very, I feel bad that he has to be responsible for me. But he takes it because he loves us. And he did it on purpose. This isn't the next point, but I've always, it always boggled my mind. We talked about it a little earlier, that verse in Revelation, um, I think it was 13, that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Before, in the beginning, God created, he knew. He couldn't help it. He had to know. He's God. He knows everything. He knows everything all at once. 
Before, let there be. Before gathering the dust together and making Adam, he knew he would have to die for us. And he did it anyway. Astounding. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the satisfying one. The word peace refers to a state of happiness, well-being, and prosperity. The word prince speaks of a captain, steward, or keeper. He is the creator, sustainer, and keeper, or captain of our peace. He accomplished peace with God when he died on the cross, 1 John 2.2 2 and Romans 5.1. He extends his peace to all who will receive him by faith, John 14. 27, he provides his peace to all who trust in him in the valleys of life, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and he is the keeper of our peace and the guarantee of continued peace throughout eternity. Ooh, there's a lot in the name, isn't there? As we close, the question, what's in a name? Well, if that name is Jason or Leah or John or Phyllis or fill in the blank, not a whole lot, right? If, if you're ever facing some kind of spiritual battle and you say, in the name of Pastor Jason, no, don't do that. That's going to not go well for anybody. Don't have, no. There's no authority. There's no power there. It's like the seven sons of Sceva. We cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons responded, well, we know who Paul is. And we know who Jesus is. We got no idea who you are. Stripped him naked, beat him up, and threw him out of the house. Don't do that. But when you come in the name of Jesus, if that name is Jesus, Emmanuel, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, there's everything in that name. His name is the source of our salvation, His name is the hope of our hearts. His name can break sin's bondage and bring freedom and healing. His name can lift the greatest burdens and comfort the broken heart. His name is the name above every other name. His name is worth knowing because it speaks of a Savior who loved us first and is worthy of our loving him in return. His name is everything. His name unlocks the door of heaven and closes the gates of hell. His name saves the vilest sinner, redeems the blackest soul, and secures the precious saints. His name may be Jesus, or Yeshua, or Emmanuel, but that name cannot tell us all there is to know about him. We can listen to some of the names he wears in the pages of the Bible, and we can respond to them. And so I only ask one question because it's the most important question for any of us, both before we come to Christ and after, and that is, what have we done with the name of Jesus? Have we received his free gift of salvation? That's the first thing that's most important for all of us is to receive the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, and offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who will call on his name. Have we received his free gift of salvation? Do you rely on him and trust in him daily? 
moment by moment. And I'm not saying that. I say this a lot. I'm not saying that to point at you like, are you doing that? Because I am. Because no, I'm not. We all need to. Do you exalt his name? Do you share his name? Do you call yourself by his name? Do you call yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower or his apprentice or whatever phrase you want to put to it? Do you call yourself by his name? What we do with his name makes all the difference in every part of our lives and on through eternity. So there you go. That's something you can think about the rest of today, the rest of this week, the rest of our lives. What are we doing with the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I give you all the glory for this beautiful season that we enter, for the snow on the ground, for the grace that you pour out. Father, I I think of how the the more the snow comes, the more that gets covered. And how the more, more snow there is, the brighter the sun reflects off of it. God, may that be our recognition of your grace in our lives. The more of your grace that it covers us, the more of your grace that abounds to us, the more we will be covered and the more we will reflect the light of your sun. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.